We're in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians. When you start a book of the Bible, it's a daunting task. As we look down, seven, eight months of preaching, or Mark was 18 months. Uh, we're hopefully going to the Old Testament next, and if you've read much of the Old Testament, the books aren't small. Uh, so we are looking down maybe a long journey in one of the Old Testament books, which will be edifying to our soul, I'm sure, it is the Word of God. This passage this morning has been spring water to my soul this week. It has been uplifting and filling me with freedom in Christ, and I hope that as we have journeyed through the last few weeks thinking about the way we walk, the way we live, that this passage will really instill in us that it is the Lord's work that changes our life. It is His power, His Spirit that is refining us and causing us to walk like Christ. I pray that we will walk out here deeply challenged to live a way, a, a kind of life that is worthy of Christ, but will live in His freedom. A freedom of the Spirit. That is my prayer. Let me read it. We're going to pray after that, and then I'm going to read a few other passages. Verse 15 in chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to your word now. And as those words we just read, I pray that we would have just a little bit more weight on the fact that it is your word. It's your word that you inspired men to write down by your spirit. And it is so useful for us today in growing in holiness, in correction and rebuke, Reproof, encouragement, and I pray that these things will take place this morning. That we will be corrected, that we will be encouraged, that we will be built up as your holy ones, your saints, your bride. Father, I pray that we would hold on to salvation being through Christ alone. Hold on to our righteousness being bound up in Christ. And from that position, Lord, will we discipline our body. 
and under the power of the Spirit, make it a slave so that we will not be destroyed by it. Bring glory to your name. Increase yourself and decrease us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read Corinthians 1 Corinthians 9, Romans 8, and 1 Corinthians 15. There are only a couple of verses. I'm not reading the whole chapters. Listen to these few verses. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wealth, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest my preaching to others, uh, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. These passages, as we hold them together, Paul's writings, we hold Paul's writings together, the words that come out is hard work. Hard work. He beats his body. We all know what an athlete is like. Professional athlete, the top of their game. They are strict on what they eat and they are strict on how much they exercise. Yet Paul goes on to say, I do it but not I, but the grace that is in me. Or in verse 13 of Romans 8, By the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body. So when he says, I do not run aimlessly, or I beat the body, I do not beat as boxes one beating the air, but I discipline my body, I keep it under control. He's not saying he does that all on his own accord, or through his own strength, but through the power of the Spirit and by the grace of Christ. But nonetheless, there's hard work involved. Let us not lose the teaching of hard work as Christians. There is nothing wrong with hard work. Hard work is essential to grow in our righteousness. We discipline ourselves, we beat our body, and we do it not of our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we lose focus of the Holy Spirit and of the cross and of the grace of Christ, we become legalists and we beat our body out of our own strength and fighting for our own morality. But as a Christian, we have been made righteous not by our work, but by the work of Christ. Our righteousness today and forever is not your own, but Christ. You cannot do more good works to elevate yourself higher. Your good works are finished Christ. His work is what you stand under. His work is what you stand in. And you will, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, or however long you live. So as the Christian, I'm made righteous today, but I work to uphold my righteousness, or Christ's righteousness in me, not by might, nor by power, 
but by His Spirit, which was so graciously given to us. And this is what we come to in this whole section of Ephesians, but particularly here as he wraps up, he's sort of walking in a different life, not walking like the world, walking about the world of the gospel, this attitude of our walk, as he wraps this section up and heads into another section about family relationships uh, and work relationships. So he starts, once again, using the walk meta metaphor. In verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This inspired letter to the church clearly states that God cares about how we live. The whole of Scripture clearly states that God cares about how humanity lives. He, he, he created us for a purpose. We aren't just free to do whatever we please. He created us with a design in mind. And Paul continues this and aligns with the rest of Scripture in that God cares how we live. He cares how Christians live in particular. He cares how saints live. And we know this because of the repetitiveness, if that's a word, of his words, walk. How you walk. Walk in a manner. Do not walk. Whether it's a should or a shouldn't walk, he's stating your walk matters. The way you live matters. The way you live should be thought about. And he says now, look carefully, carefully at your walk. Examine your walk. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13. Examine your walk. And 1 John, the whole book of 1 John, John is about examining your life to see whether you are in the faith. Examine. So the Christian is not apathetic in their life or flippant about the way they live or so chilled out and relaxed that they just don't care. No, they examine and they discipline themselves to continually examine their motives, their intentions, and every other aspect of their life. And they examine to see how they walk. Where would you fit? Where would you fit as you examine your life in the unwise or the wise category? As we think about those words, these, this, this phrase really sends us back to another section of Scripture. It sends us to the Proverbs, a book of wisdom written uh, by Solomon, maybe, to his son, inspired by God. And as I read Proverbs, I feel like it's the Father God speaking to me as a son. The way it is written is like God the Father gently instructing his child about a better way to live. Now our world is a foolish world. We know that from the scriptures, but we just know that from living in it. It's a foolish world. And it's foolish because we believe that we can learn from our mistakes. How often does a generation need to make the same mistakes as the generation before them. Every generation does the same foolish things, and we keep repeating the same mistakes. Proverbs says learn first. Learn and then live. Understand first and then go on to live it out. You don't need to make the same mistakes. 
especially if you're in Christ, because God has instructed us to how we are meant to live. But of course, the human soul and heart is broken or fallen, and we cannot live fully to God's standard. So what does Proverbs tell us? Well, he tells us that the unwise person is a fool. He doesn't use unwise, he says, what they are, fool. Or another translation is the simple-minded. Pretty harsh, really, when you think about it. And they are described as a person who believes there is no God. A fool, or the unwise person, is one who believes there is no God. Therefore, the wise person is one who knows that there is a God. Not only that knows there is a God, knows that God and fears Him. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, which is repeated all the way throughout Job and Proverbs, and we see throughout the New Testament. Fear the Lord. The Christian is one who has come to know God intimately by the gift of His Spirit. Therefore, we know what it means to fear God, and we know what it means to understand who God is, because His Spirit is helping us understand Him through His written Word. So when we look carefully at our walk, we need to be careful not to be living like a fool. Not to be living as one who knows there is a God, but actually our actions say that we don't think there's one. Our actions say that we don't want to follow His way. We walk around saying, oh, I believe in God, but our life is not under His will or His way of life. The Proverbs go on to say that the fool hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. They say that they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satisfied with their own devices. For the waywardness of the natives shall kill them, and the complacency of the fool shall destroy them. We talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, that our own actions, God hands us over as punishment to our own desires of our heart. The fool is handed over to the fruit of their own way, and it's through them choosing to live their own way that they will come to destruction. They will wear the punishment or the consequences of their own actions. The supreme fool is the person who is who has anti-God thinking and living patterns. So when we look carefully at our way, it's more than just saying, I know God. It's more than just saying, I believe in Christ. But has our life become to align to Christ over a period of time? Of course, there are still errors in all our lives and sins that plague us, but has our life slowly been changing to a direction that is ultimately about the Lord and bringing Him glory? The wise fear the Lord. That means we have come to understand His wealth and we're continuing to understand His work. His power, His holiness. We've spoken so many times about how we should meditate on the characteristics and the attributes of God. And as we understand them more, we will see how terrifyingly humbling He is. God is terrifying. 
He's terrified. And it's humbling to sit in his world. When we stand in the midst of things that cause us to fear, we are humble. We realize our utter weakness. We realize our power, power, powerlessness. It's not a word either. I'm making up a lot today. We realize that we have no strength of our own. If you've been out in a boat in the middle of the ocean, it's a scary place to be. You have no control. That boat isn't that strong among the waves. When we read about a holy, holy, holy God who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that makes and should make us tremble. Tremble in humility and come to a place where we surrender to His will. The fear of the Lord is essential for our life. Pilgrim's Progress is one of the greatest books for an analogy of the Christian life. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. Written, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say what was written for me to get wrong. Written a long time ago, maybe 400 years ago, and we see in the Pilgrim's Progress a guy named Pilgrim or Christian, depending on the way they've translated it, live a life as he's on the pursuit of the Holy City. This is our ultimate outcome. The Christian has changed their ultimate desire from living for success in this life and ultimately leaving a legacy for themselves to pursuing the Holy City. The place where God dwells. And as we read about his journey, he goes through this world and on this path of facing the evilness of this world. Remember, in this passage it tells us making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I think there's this false doctrine over the last few decades that's come into the church that we actually live in a good period of time. That is false. The scriptures clearly state that we are in a world that is evil. It says that here in 1 John 5, 19, it says we are under the control of the evil one. Is this something you believe? Do you believe that the world is evil? And as we read the Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim is going through this world and faces temptations and wanders from the path into doubt, fear of man and worldliness, but carefully carefully examines his steps and comes back to the path that tends to the Holy City. It's a great analogy for us to meditate on that as we are walking through this life, we are carefully looking at the way we walk to see when we have slipped into foolishness and say, yeah, I know God, but our life is not aligned to His will or way. It's easy to do. We will all fall into that path. We will all walk down the wrong path, whether it be doubt or fear of man or worldliness at some point. But we can be encouraged that as we examine carefully our walk, there is grace to bring us back on the right path. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. In verse 16, he says, Make the best use of time. 
The reality is that our time is not eternal. We have a temporary, fixed period of time. We will all expire at some point. It says in the Psalms that your day has been numbered, like it's already been written. We know when you, well, we don't, God knows when you will die. So, do not, do not be foolish by wasting that time, but understand what the Lord God is. It gives us an alternative. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually blinded. 1 Corinthians 2.14 We, on the other hand, are not blind to the Scripture. If you have repented and believed in the Lord and been given the Holy Spirit, you have eyes to see the Word and understand the words of Scripture. So we no longer have to live in foolishness, but rather we can understand the will of the Lord. So making the best use of our time is understanding the will of the Lord. Day after day after day. Now we can get bogged down. We can get bogged down in the attitude that says, What is God's will for my life? I'm waiting, I'm waiting on God to reveal His will for my life. I'm just going to spend the next two, three years praying until God reveals to me what His will for my life is. Well, God has revealed His will. Not as clearly as you would like in that he hasn't stated who you will marry, what job you will do, and uh, what, how you will spend your wealth or your income. But he stated so clearly, so clearly that his will is for his people to come to repentance and belief, for them to be sanctified. In the, these words, bound up for us, collated for us, Throughout the scriptures, it is revealed again and again what God's will is. And simply put, it's enjoying Him. That's worship. It's making His name known. That's called evangelism. And it's becoming more like Him. That's called discipleship. That is God's will. And you've all been gifted differently to do different things and to be placed in different places to do those very things. Enjoy God as a doctor, or a nurse, or a builder, or a teacher, or whatever it is you do. Advance God's name, or Christ's name, in that context, and become more like Him. Whatever it is, wherever we are, whether we're at uni, school, or working, or wherever we are in sickness, whatever our situation is at the moment, these are His will. Let's not get bogged down and waiting for that moment where he gives us a vision to tell us where to go. Those were very rare in the scriptures. In the whole of Acts, Paul is only ever told directly where to go once over a 40-year period. And he was an apostle. It's a rare experience for a vision to come our way for us to know exactly the role he wants us to play. But I can guarantee you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, Enjoy God, make His name known, and be sanctified from more life, become more like Him. Always in our best use, using the best, sorry, making the best use of our time is about seeking His will in whatever context we're in. Verse 18, He changes 
He goes down a weird path and he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We're still looking at, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And he gives this weird comparison. The comparison is drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. It's like, how do they relate? Well, drunkenness that leads to debauchery is someone who is out of control. And being filled with the Spirit is someone who is self-controlled. There's a comparison here. The unwise, the foolish person is living completely wayward. So whether we're drunk on wine, or whether we're drunk on our own ambition, or drunk on our own pride, we're out of control. If we are filled with the Spirit, we have been given the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. So the two ways to walk, if we're looking carefully at our lives, if we're looking carefully at our walk, the unwise walk is drunkenness. And the wise walk is spirit-filled. Now there are many different views of what it means to be spirit-filled, and some are really unhelpful. What do we know about the Spirit? Well, from just this letter, we know he is given to those who believe in Jesus as a seal for the day of redemption, for the day that we go to be with Christ. We are sealed like an envelope is sealed with the King's stamp, so that when we enter into heaven, Christ will see us as his own. He's our guarantee. That means we cannot lose the Spirit. If you have the Spirit once and you are given the Spirit, you will not be able to get rid of the Spirit. You can't, your friends can't, no one can. It's a guarantee. It's not much of a guarantee if you can get rid of it. So the Holy Spirit remains. The Holy Spirit leads us into a life of repentance and belief in Jesus and all that He said and has done. The Holy Spirit leads us into a life of repentance that is is so important. It brings us to a place of humility to first repent of our sin, but continue to repent of our sin. If we stop repenting, it may be a sign that we never had the Spirit, or you're grieving the Spirit. But also, that we believe in, and this is important, all that Jesus said, or all that His Word says, We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to use the Bible as a reference guide and say, oh yeah, I like that, that's really encouraging, that's that's a good moral way to live, I'll take that, but I'll leave the other part. All that he said and all that he did. He did physically die, he did physically raise from the dead, and he did all the signs and wonders that are recorded. We know that the Spirit is called our comforter, and our counsellor. Our comforter and our counsellor. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we also know that the, the, the gift, we also know that Luke 11 tells us that it is a gift from God. So when we read this and it says, be filled with the Spirit, we can't take that as a command of something that we can do. You can't control the Spirit. You can't tell the Spirit, now fill me, or don't fill me. The Spirit is a gift from the Father. So what is this trying to tell us? Well, a correct way of phrasing this is being, be being kept by the Spirit. But it doesn't make much sense in English. Be being kept by the Spirit is 
how it would be phrased in the original, which translated it word for word. Be being kept by the Spirit, being that we have been given the Spirit, so now be kept by it. Stay with the Spirit, or trapped with the Spirit. Follow His will, His way. So when it speaks of being filled by the Spirit, it's saying that we have been filled to the rim. And it's an image of a cup that has, it almost looks like the water sitting over the top of the rim. Or the other phrase is, it permeates the whole of our life, or takes total control. So there are moments in the Christian life where we would feel like we are living in submission to the will of the Spirit, and it's where we're living in contentment and we're cruising along, following the will of God, but there are times when we push down the Spirit and we take control. This is the comparison that Paul was trying to make. We have times where we no longer submit to the Spirit's way, but our way. If we go back to that first phrase, look carefully at how you work, not as unwise, but as wise. He's saying, look carefully, there are moments in your life where your flesh will rule. There are moments in your day, there are moments in your week, there's moments in your month, or maybe seasons that go by where your flesh is making the decisions and you are walking foolishly. So Paul is saying, keep being filled by the Spirit. Stay at the place you were when you were first saved. Stay at the place you were when Christ called you out of darkness and into light. And he's making it very clear that without the Spirit, you can't walk right. Without the Spirit, you will always walk unwise. So, the work of being the body and making it a slave is not your own work, but it is the work of the Spirit. We've been told in the last few chapters that we should put on humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, uh, fight for unity, goodness, righteousness and truth in last week's passage, and all of which are impossible without the Holy Spirit. So this whole section, chapter 4, 5 and 6, is impossible for the foolish person without the Holy Spirit. We need to have the Holy Spirit. So how does that look? How does it play out? Well, the greatest problem that will stand against the Holy Spirit in our life is pride. The Holy Spirit brings us to a place of humility. John the Baptist, decrease me and increase Christ. That is his cry as he gets arrested and goes off to jail, gets beheaded, and Jesus says he was the greatest man that ever lived. And that's his life. The greatest man that ever lived got beheaded by a Roman for a slave girl. The Christian life is marked by humility. And it is the key to walking in the Spirit. If we are to walk full of the Spirit, it's not about feelings and emotions, it's not about warm, fuzzy feelings or visions or anything like that. It's about humility and submission to His will and way. We are to be emptied of ourselves 
We are to pray, and I pray that you would pray this for me. If you do not know what to pray for me, just pray this over and over again, that I would be humbled. And I'll pray the same for you. Moment after moment, that I would be humbled, continually decreasing of self in me and in you, is our prayer. So when we look carefully at how we walk, we must first ask the question, whose power am I walking in? As we examine this life, as we start to explore, uh, am I walking wise or unwise at the moment? Today, have I been foolish or have I been walking in the fear of the Lord? Ask yourself, whose power am I walking in? A great, a great way to study that or think through that is, are you elevating your own righteousness? Or are you comfortable in the fact that your righteousness in Christ is in Christ? Second question as we examine or look carefully at our life or look carefully at our walk is how has pride, pride caused me to walk unwise? Let me give you some example. Pride will stop you from praying. It will stop you from studying the word. Pride will stop you from surrendering, from hearing correction, from service, from generosity. It is pride that is attached to all other aspects of sin in your life. So when we're examining our life and looking carefully at how we walk, how is pride causing you to walk unwise? Have you stopped praying? Stop reading? Stop serving? And stop hearing correction. And then finally, humble confession. You know, confession isn't telling God anything new. When we come to God and confess to Him, it's not telling Him something new. It's actually agreeing with God. That's actually what the word confession means, to agree with God. God has revealed this about who you are, you're evil, you're a liar, you're deceitful, you're an adulterer, you're a stealer, a thief. And then we come to God and say, God, I agree with what your word says about me. How freeing is that? That when we come to God in confession, we're saying, God, I know I'm full of pride. I know I am weak. I know I am helpless. So we stop thinking that we can do it. We start surrendering to the Spirit's will. That is what it means to walk by the Spirit, to just humbly accept that you can't and God can, or God has done already. We've got to, as Christians, lose the word trying out of our language. Oh, I'm trying to fight sin. Oh, I'm trying to read the Bible. I'm trying to be more disciplined. You can't. It's that simple. So living by the power of the Holy Spirit is coming to God first and foremost by saying, God, I am unable. When I go out to the streets, or when you go out to the streets and you're about to evangelize and you've got that fear of man, you say, God, I agree with your word, I'm afraid of man, and that's sin, let me be afraid of you. God, give me strength from here. And then, for some reason, our Christianity has got to this place where we need to feel something before we do anything. We don't need to feel anything. Trust the Holy Spirit, trust His word, and take steps into that place. Just walk into it. Whether it's evangelism or being generous, when we 
feel the conviction that the Lord wants us to give more, but we know that it's going to strain us and cause more pain in our, in our life. We'll say no to things and we're like, our flesh can't. Admit it. The first thing we do is admit, Lord, I know I can't. I'm too weak to give up my money. I'm too weak to be more generous. I agree with what your word says. Strengthen me to do this. And then do it. Step into it. Walk into that. Walk that path. John MacArthur said, The continuous aspect of being filled involves day by day, moment by moment, submission to the Spirit's control. The passive aspect indicates that it is not, that it is not something we do, but that we allow to be done to us. It's not something we do, but that we allow to be done to us. Admit your weaknesses. Pray for strength. And step into it. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. We're not trying. You're not trying to give up sin. You're not trying to give up your habits. God knows you can't. And the Spirit produces, in verse 19, a number of fruits in our life. Praise, thanksgiving, and submission. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is not a command for us to do, but it's rather the outworking of the Spirit in our life. If we are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with joy and wanting to sing. It renews both our worship and our relationships. We look at the worship here and next week and a few weeks after we will look at how the Spirit working in us will renew our relationships as well. In marriage, in family, in workplace. But right now in worship, the Spirit will produce in us a heart of praise. Christians are singing people, are joyful people. I heard one, one person say, uh, God is too good to merely talk about, so we must sing about Him. And we get a variety of ways because He is infinitely more beautiful than we realize. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, melody in our heart. Joy. Joy is to be had by the Christian who is full of the Spirit. There are times for sorrow and mourning, but even in the midst of that, there is joy. So as we look at this passage, look carefully at how you work. There's work to do, to look carefully at how we walk. But there's joy in the midst of surrender and humble submission of telling God already what He knows. Of agreeing with That brings joy into our life. And we sing psalms. And hymns and spiritual songs, and it says we address one another. When we sing as a congregation, and I praise God that we can sing together today, we're singing to God, but we're also serving one another. I'm so passionate about not having music that's too loud because it drains out the congregation. The congregation should be heard. So when you sing, you're not singing. For you, you're singing to bring glory to Christ and for your brother and sister to build them up. Sing for them. Encourage them with the truth of the words that we sing. And we sing, we can sing psalms. 
How common is it that you're going through a period of suffering and a brother or sister will send you a psalm and it just fills your soul with joy? Hymns would have been New Testament songs about the redemption of Christ, spiritual songs, things that refer to how God is delivering us through our lives. But here's the important one. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. How's your heart in all this? Because we can say a whole lot of stuff as Christians. As people we say a whole lot of stuff, but where is our heart at? Is it singing to the Lord? Is there just an overall contentment and joy that just resonates in you? You know, this is it's pretty challenging because we can come pretty apathetic as Christians towards worship and even just having joy for one another. The Bible tells us that we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not encouraging that because I don't like physical contact at all. I don't really like hugs, so don't kiss me. But I am encouraging us to have deep joy when we come together. When we meet one another, is there a joy about seeing each other? Is there a joy about knowing that this brother or sister, they're for you, they're with you, they're grinding out this life with you, and they're, they're pushing you on and spurring you on as they meet, as you meet with them, you've got something more in common with them than, than maybe you even have with your own family. There should be joy about seeing each other. And it comes from a place deep within our heart. But we are so sure of who we are in Christ. We're so sure of our righteousness in Him that we're not worried about what other people would think of us. When we are sure that our righteousness is Him, we can come in with confidence. Admitting, owning our weaknesses, surrendering to His will, and as this says at the end, in verse 21, submitting to one another. That's a hard place to be. Before we get to submitting, the other aspect is thanksgiving. Giving thanks always for everything to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Christians, spirit-filled Christians, if you want to use that term, are not people who are feeling overly emotional things, but people who are thankful for what Christ has given them. They're not complaining people. We're not entitled people. We don't brag about our might, our strength, our wealth, our possessions, our intelligence. But rather, we're thankful for God for everything that we've been given. For the family that we grew up in, for the provision that the government has provided, for the work that God has given us, for the education that He has brought us, for whatever it is we're thankful. Are we demonstrating to our brothers and sisters? Thankfulness. And that word submission or submitting, the world hates it, and it should. The devil who is ruling the world, as we said in 1 John 5 19, he ultimately fell from heaven because he would not submit to the Lord. So, why? Of course, the world would hate submission. It's the very Attribute that is given to the devil. 
But submission is fruit of the Spirit. And every single person in this world, in this room, who says they follow Lord, the Lord and has the Spirit in their heart, has to submit. Every one of us is submitting in some aspect. And that's why the problem that we have is pride. Pride is our problem. And maybe you don't like the word submission. If you don't like the word submission, you don't like Christ. Because Christ demonstrated the ultimate submission when he submitted to the Father's will, although being equal to him. And if there was two words that describe a Christian, it's humble servant. Jesus was the perfect example of a humble servant, and it's the life we are called to live. So the Spirit leads us into a new community, a community where we are all humble servants, each and every one of us living as humble servants. And that shows itself in our relationships as husbands and wives, as wives submit to their husbands, and husbands submit to Christ, and the church submits to Christ, and children submit to parents, and slaves submit to masters, or we will come to explain that later in the next month or so. We are all called to submission, to imitate Christ. And we do it out of a fear for Him, a reverence for Him, or a respect for Him. He did it, so we do it. You can be sure that if a person is acting brashly, arrogantly, or self-assertive, in a self-assertive way, they are not walking in the Spirit. You can be sure of it. It's not even a question to ask. So these three things show that we have the Spirit within us. Worship, thanksgiving, and submission. Shows that we are surrendering to His will. There's no room to excuse any of these aspects. But we must look carefully how we walk. Look carefully how we walk. Are we in humble submission to the Spirit? Humbly admitting our weaknesses. Humbly asking for strength, humbly going into action, and humbly coming to praise and thanksgiving. Would our life be marked by humility? And only by the Spirit will it happen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you praise. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for Christ and the way he walked in an evil world in total submission to your will and your way, even to the point of death, that would ultimately set us free from the penalty and the way of sin. Lord, I know that I am weak and my brothers and sisters are weak. I know that pride is a deep-seated aspect of human nature and that each moment of every day we must examine and look carefully that we are not walking in pride for his foolishness. 
Rather, let us walk, Lord, in, in humility, in confessing what you already know, and knowing that in our humble submission and humble confession, you, by your Spirit and through your good grace, give us the strength to walk in the things we never thought we would do, to overcome habitual sins, to stand against the fear of men, but to stand against men without, without fear. To be more generous than we could or have. To serve the least and the low. Lord, all these things. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that is marked by humility. Humility and servitude. As Christ was. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.